Today's call to worship is in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, and then by twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but by the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Good morning, church family. Today we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Today's gospel reading is in Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Uh, But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went. Out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they were nothing, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We're reading from First Corinthians fifteen, twelve through twenty-six. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified that God has raised Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men of the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one is under in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Anybody recall whether it was the Pharisees or the Sadducees who believed in resurrection? That's correct. It was the Pharisees who believed in resurrection and the Sadducees who didn't, as I recall as well. It was a political issue, one that uh, was debated and talked about, one that was an important theme and issue of the day, uh, very much like debates today between Republicans and Democrats. Strong feelings and rhetoric on both sides. Paul, in the midst of this, must make an argument, and he must do so from history. And more to the point, we have to take this amazing story and come to some kind of understanding ourselves in faith. The Old Testament reading started with Genesis 2, second part of verse 4 through 7. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living being. It's a wonderful text. So concise. That whole, the Lord, formed, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, is as crude a description as we could possibly hope to have. For while we know we are dust, mostly water actually, and then a few vital chemicals and things that might be found in earth, we have this wonderful image of a being being formed like the maker's image, a material thing emerging from nothing, with all of the beauty and all of the complexities, all of the systems, all of the organs and functions that will be necessary for life. It's far more than dust that's assembled. It's not a mud heap that God breathes breath of life into. It is a body. The Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew, would tell us that Adam was inspired to life. I love that. God breathes into him this breath of life, this breath, this spirit, this energy of life, and he becomes a being, a living being, a soul, if you will, to use the King James. 
A sentient being, one with thought and imagination, one with the capacity to process information and relate, a relational, a social being. The complexity of this is beyond my understanding because humans are not born, they're socialized. Oh yes, a baby born, we would say, is in human form, but to be what we would say to be truly human, the baby must be socialized. It learns to recognize faces and language patterns. It learns meaning. It determines. It takes time for its eyes to adjust and for it to begin to make sense of the data that's being input into its brain. It takes time for the ears to get used to the new stimuli of the outside world, not just the thump of the heartbeat. It happens very quickly with the intelligence with which we're imbued. But God forms this being and inspires it to life. And it's pre-programmed, apparently, ready to receive data, ready to understand language, ready to communicate. That energy of life, that spirit of life that inhabits Adam, that comes to Adam in this, is not widely differentiated in the Greek or the language from spirit, Holy Spirit, too. In Greek, spirit is pneuma, means breath or wind, air. And yet it's life. Holy life. So we move out of that image and I brought you there because I want you to think of that word inspired to life. Breathed into life. And all of the connotations that go with inspiration. All of the meanings there this formed body in the presence of the Creator God. Fast forward. The Creator God, we're told from the dawn of time, had planned on redeeming us. I don't begin to comprehend that statement. I don't expect you to either. I'll be deeply troubled if you say you can. It wasn't meant for you to be able to comprehend. It's not a secret to be ascertained. It is that which is part and parcel of divine knowledge and being. A few months ago we recognized the mystery of all of this as Divine being takes on flesh, incarnate, puts on flesh, born of woman, raised with all of the vulnerabilities. He isn't just demoted from God to some sort of heavenly being or angelic being, he's demoted from God to being a human being and a fallen one at that. That's not to say Jesus had sin. That's just to say the state of things wasn't exactly as originally planned or made, was it? And so he enters this world at this point in history. 
The devil has placed a ransom, a price on the planet, a price on humankind, and it will be the very life of God. And so he dwells with us full of truth and grace, the gospel says. It's a wonderful picture. Bringing inspiration whenever he speaks. Bringing inspiration whenever he touches. Bringing inspiration whenever he calls forth the dead or feeds the multitudes or prays in the presence of anyone. For that matter, he brings inspiration whenever he's touched or seen. That's another way of saying he cast out demons. He caused withered limbs to open up and bent backs to go straight. He gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the dumb. He took those who couldn't walk, paraplegics, quadriplegics, and healed them. And he gave life to the dead. He could take a meal and feed a multitude. It wasn't just neat tricks. It was God inspiring, breathing life back into a broken planet, breathing life back into a broken people. Recreating, setting the world straight. And for his trouble, he is elected king, but for a short time. The fickle crowd will find it necessary to silence this inspiring voice. The fickle crowd, not able to manipulate. God, unable to determine the agenda, unable to use God to fulfill human ends and rid themselves of the Romans, unable to politically accomplish what they had on their own agendas, declared him an enemy of the state. We have but one king, Caesar. Really? You know the story of Passover, of betrayal, being shuttled from court to court and place to place. You know of his abuse and torture. You've studied his crucifixion. You know the earth shook and darkness covered the world. you know that life and light had exited the planet. There was nothing left but emptiness and darkness and the grave. And then the women go to the tomb It's a service, a loving service, an expensive service, laden with spice, still mourning, 
still reeling from the horrific sights of days gone by and before, still weeping, they go to the tomb. I'm not even sure they realize that the stone has been rolled away. But when they enter, they're startled to see a young man in white. You remember when I talked about the angels and the shepherds? I love the King James there. It says, and they were sore afraid. It was, in modern terms, a freak out moment. They were very afraid. They were as dead men with fear. You see, an angel is a mighty and glorious thing. A beautiful and a terrible thing. One with the glory of God still radiating from its presence and its face. One who bears the task of protecting or messaging. And this being described as a young man in white is there and the women are sore afraid. Terrified, in fact. And the angel says, don't be afraid. I know why you're here. I know why you're here and the one you're looking for is not here for he is risen. You'll see him as you go to your next location. Paul tries to systematize it for us. And that's where we come to our text in Corinthians 15. And if you'll turn there, I'd like to look at that briefly with you again. The empty tomb becomes a focal point. The various accounts of how it happens and what happens can be compiled into a single account with a few interesting contradictions, but not too many. The empty tomb, the guards report, the appearance of Jesus to Mary, her hugging him and him saying, I'm not yet ready. I I haven't yet ascended to my father. Don't detain me. And many accounts of what happened as Peter races ahead of John, or John races ahead of Peter, rather, and yet doesn't have the will to go into the tomb, and Peter just charges on in. The angel appearances and so forth. It's a pivotal moment, and our theologian Paul will tell us why. This Pharisee who believes in resurrection is about to put the nail in the last coffin of the argument. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I've preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. In my baptismal preparation class this morning with our precious children, I talked to them about Paul and his statements here. 
Our faith is predicated on this gospel which has been preached. This is what we've taken our stand. It is by faith in this gospel that we find our salvation. And here's what it is. For what I received I passed on to you as of primary importance, first importance. This is the essence of it. This is the summary. This is the most important thing. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, in fulfillment of the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas or Peter, And then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. And parenthetically, though some have fallen asleep. What did Jesus call death? Asleep. When he first did that, John chapter 11, when he was referring to Lazarus as being asleep, the disciples said, oh, well, if he's sleeping, he's going to wake up. Jesus said, don't be silly, he's dead. But for Christ, the one present in that moment in which a being is made and inspired to life, for Christ, the creator, one dead might as well just be one asleep. Amen? For one asleep will surely wake up. Then he appeared to James, verse 7, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Now Paul talks about himself. He's the apostle abnormally born. He was not the disciple of Jesus Christ. But he's one who's encountered Christ in a moment in which he was about, he thought, God's business, but the wrong business, and done the wrong way on his way to Damascus to arrest and persecute and kill those who were followers of the way, those who had caught a glimpse of Jesus Christ. He's met in that Damascus Road experience by an appearance. He's the one abnormally born. And he says so in 9, for I'm the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by grace I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I've worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. He says, ah, but now I'm, now I'm meandering, I'm wandering a bit. Let's get back to the point. What I have preached to you is Christ incarnate, Christ crucified, and Christ resurrected. It is in this that you have your faith, and it is, this, it is in this that you have found life. And then he begins his treatise on resurrection. Several key arguments. They're very simple, really, if we break them down, but stated in the usual rhetoric and sophisticated. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can you say, how can some of you say, how can you Sadducees say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching of that fact is useless, and so is your faith. That's a pretty simple argument, isn't it? 
If there's no resurrection, then Christ can't have been raised. But if Christ has been raised, how can we argue that there's no resurrection? It's not very complicated, but it's compelling. And then I like the way he throws this in. He likes, Paul likes playing to this particular uh, thing that we all dread. We all dread being wrong, don't we? Oh, two of you. <laughs> I'd really like to watch the rest of you as a fly on the wall in your businesses, in your homes. See how you handle it when you're proven to be wrong. And we'll see if you aren't just afraid a little bit of being wrong. No, you're afraid of being wrong in your life, and so am I. Except I get to do it all the time and publicly. <laughs> More than that, verse 15, we are then found to be false witnesses of God, about God, for we have testified that God excuse me, we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if in fact he did not raise him, then the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. I like this argument. For those of the camp intent on honoring God as a monolith, uh, this monotheistic God, this singular God, as he should be honored, as the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Those who very clearly will not even say the name of God, for that would be a violation of the commandment, and have broken it down into syllables that are unpronounceable. For those who would not think to speak ill of God in any kind of conventional sense. Paul says to those folks, guess what? We make ourselves to be false witnesses about God. Now, it's one thing to bear false witness. What does the commandment says? It say, thou shalt not bear false witness. But that's against somebody, a peer, or an inferior, or superior. That's just one of us. But... What does it mean in terms of our mortal souls and danger, so to speak, if we've borne false witness about God? That's pretty serious. In Paul's book and in the Times, it would have been extremely serious. Basically, you're lying about who God is and claims about God because what you have said is that God raised Christ from the dead, but in fact, if he wasn't raised from the dead, God couldn't have raised him from the dead, and you've made yourself out to be a false witness and a liar. Argument two. And then he concludes with that same notion, and your faith is futile. Go home. It's a... I, I, I have to be careful about my references. It's, it's not without its... Uh, flaws as a film, but um, I have to confess that at one point in life I have seen and enjoyed Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> and now having made that confession, I can't remember why I brought it up. <laughs> Paul's fond of saying, your faith is futile, 
if this isn't true. And maybe I'll remember the Ferris Bueller reference another time. It's so fun how the mind works at times. You have to admit, usually I can follow through with those things, but not today. Verse 16, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Nothing's changed. He said earlier, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And now I remember. (laughs) At the very end of the movie, after the credits, Ferris reappears and says, what are you doing here? The movie's over. Go home. You remember that? That's what Paul's saying here. If Christ is not resurrected, I, your pastor, need to say what I'm doing here is useless. I should really get off the payroll and go home. What are you doing here? That's the point. Your faith is futile and so is my preaching if Christ is not resurrected from the grave. What is the center point of the gospel? It is the resurrection of Christ. That's the center point. You can say he came as a ransom, he suffered and he died, but if he's still in the tomb, it doesn't mean a lot. You can say he came to earth, and that's demonstrable how? We've all come to earth. But when we say that he came to earth, the condescension happened, the incarnation happened, the mystery, the divine mystery occurred. And when we say he put on flesh, and when we say he was our ransom, the devil's ransom, when we say he paid the price for sin and death and to re-inherit this planet, when we say that not only did he die, but he came back to life, and this time to a life incorruptible, For there is no second death for those who are alive in Christ. And so he goes to the Father. And because of those facts, we can have faith. Because of those facts, we can have life. Because of those facts, my preaching is not useless. And your presence here is not useless. Your faith is not in vain. Paul will argue, your sins indeed have been forgiven. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. It just gets worse, of course. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all others. Those of you children who were in my class this morning heard me talk about that. How sad to live a life for something that didn't happen and to pin our hopes on something in which there's no reality. But praise be to God, our faith is not useless. We're not to be pitied. Praise be to God, there is resurrection of the dead, and Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. And this is Paul's refrain in verse 20. But, it's a big but, maybe the largest in all of Scripture. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. 
the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a human being. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But in this order, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those of us who belong to him. This is why we look forward to the second coming. This is why at funeral time we remember the resurrection of Christ and of the promise of the resurrection of the dead. For when he comes, we will join him. Those who belong to him will also be resurrected. Paul says in verse 24, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And we're talking about all dominion, authority, and power that is not God's. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. And Paul concludes with this, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I could leave you today with the hope of resurrection. I could leave you today with the thought that when he comes, those in Christ are raised from the dead. I could leave you today with Paul's arguments about the veracity and truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what I want to leave you with today goes back to Genesis. I want this story to be a story of inspiration. I happen to believe, and I'm in no way a a reductionist on this, but I happen to be a pragmatist to some degree on this. Maybe it's my Americanism, maybe it's something else. But if Christianity cannot make a difference in my life in the here and now, I don't feel like I have much use for it in the future. Maybe you share that viewpoint. And I, like Paul, would argue, thanks be to God, it does make a difference in the here and now. That's why I'm a Christian. And so what I want to leave you with today is not the historical fact of an empty tomb or a theological treatise on why resurrection is the reality or arguments for the veracity of the story of Christ's resurrection. As God bent over a created form and inspired it to life from a state that wasn't life. I hope that we who have been dead in our sins and who've received grace and hope and forgiveness are inspired to life in Jesus Christ. That his resurrection, his life, brings life abundant and meaning and purpose to your life today. I want to leave you breathing, taking in resurrection life as it is in Christ now. Or yes, unless he comes in our lifetimes, we shall surely see death. But thanks be to God, in Jesus Christ, there's life. Now, and resurrection life when he comes again.
And so for the now, take a breath with me. Spring is here. Well, as Paul said, sort of. I love it. I like the cool and the warm staggered. I love clouds and little sprinkles and big storms and rains. I think this sort of chaotic thing we have going is fabulous. But I'm in the minority on this. Whatever's happening, there are bees buzzing, there are flowers blooming, there are trees budding out and putting out leaves. Whatever's happening, the hills are green, spring has come, life is all around. Whatever's happening, Christ is alive and his spirit is with us. And we can breathe. We can take in that inspiration. He's promised to be with us. And life can be more now. We can be taken from death to life. We can receive the inspiration, the enlivening of the resurrection today. And as God has been so richly gracious and generous, kind and benevolent, self-sacrificing and loving, giving and caring, the source of everything. It's our turn now to respond with a thank you, with a gift, with an obedient yes to his call to bring his tithes and offerings now to the storehouse. Let us honor God and thank him with hearts overflowing as the offering is collected.